Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. I read the story this week of a man in Colorado who in April of this year, scratched off a handful of lottery tickets that he had been collecting. So his general habit was to to wait until he had several that he had gathered and scratched and then take them in to see if any of them had won anything. And so he had been collecting some lottery tickets over the past six or eight months. And in April, he finally scratched them all off and took them in to see if he had won anything. And he discovered, to his surprise, that from a ticket he purchased in November of last year, he won a jackpot of $2 million, which is kind of unbelievable. Now, I think he only ended up with like less than half of that once all the taxes are out and all that good stuff. But he had been sitting on a winning lottery ticket for some six months, not even realizing it, until he finally decided to scratch them all off and take them in and discovered Since November, he had had the winning lottery ticket. It even said he had seen on the news that someone in that November lottery had been the big winner, but he he thought, there's no way that was me, and so he just didn't even think about it until April when he decided to bring them in and found out that he had won $2 million, and he had had the winning ticket in his possession the whole time and had no idea, had no access to it, was not utilizing it in any way. I think a lot of times we're a little bit like that in our spiritual lives. We don't realize what we have. We have been given such great and precious treasures, far bigger and better and deeper and more eternal than a couple million bucks. I promise you that. We have incredible treasures at our disposal, spiritual riches in relationship to God, and so often we live as though We don't even know about it. We live as though it's not even really in our possession. Jesus has some words of instruction for us today that I think will challenge us and encourage us at the same time. So in John chapter 16, Jesus uh, is going to basically conclude in the verses we'll cover today his sort of final sermon, if you will, to his disciples. So this is the night of his arrest, his betrayal by Judas and his arrest uh, by the Romans and uh, that will lead to his crucifixion the next day. And so he's been with his disciples. They shared a meal together. He washed their feet as a picture of the cleansing that he would provide on the cross. And then he's been speaking to them about what's going to happen, warning them that he's about to leave because he's going to return to the Father. And things are going to get hard. The world is going to hate you. And there's going to be persecution and suffering that comes your way. But I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, right? So when I leave, it's actually to your benefit because then the Spirit will come and live inside you and you'll have my guidance and strength uh, through the Spirit. And so he's been telling them these things. And he comes to the last paragraph, if you will, of this message in John 16, beginning in verse 25. And we're going to take this in two separate chunks. So I'm going to read for you verses 25 through 28, and we'll talk about what we see here. I think we will find two words 
two words that summarize the resources that are ours in Jesus that we sometimes don't even live like we have access to. So verses 25 through 28, Jesus says this. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So he tells the disciples in verse 25, the hour is coming when I will speak to you plainly, right? I've been speaking to you in sort of figures of speech, and I don't think he means that in a, in a, in a, in a literary way, just that he's been speaking in ways that they didn't quite understand, at times in parables that they didn't get, and that was kind of the point of them. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, you know? Uh, if you can understand it, then the Spirit is at work in you. And if you don't understand it, then so be it. Uh, so at times, he's kind of intentionally mysterious or vague. At other times, not necessarily mysterious, but just hard. And statements back in John chapter 6, like, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life, that made many people turn away from him. Uh, that is too weird for me. I can't be a follower of this guy. Right? So he says, I've been speaking to you in these kind of vague, mysterious figures of speech. But there's a time coming when I will speak plainly to you about the Father. I will speak plainly to you about the Father. I think the time he's talking about is the time between his resurrection and his return to heaven. So he's about to go be crucified. And we know that on the third day after his crucifixion, he will rise from the dead. And the scriptures tell us that he spends 40 days with his disciples, making appearances to various groups of his followers and teaching them about the kingdom of God, teaching them about how the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, all pointed to him as the Messiah and the fulfillment. And it's going to be very plain, and they'll begin to make sense of all these things they've been hearing. He says, there is a time coming when I will speak to you plainly. We have the incredible story in Luke chapter 24 after Jesus is raised where he joins a couple of disciples, probably not the 12, but some other people who have been following Jesus. He joins some disciples on the road walking and he hears them talking and, and about what's just happened. Well, Jesus has just been crucified and, and he says, well, what, what are you talking about? What's going on here? And they said, well, we had hoped that the kingdom of God was here and that, that, that Jesus was the Messiah that was going to bring it, but I guess you don't know. He died. He, he's been crucified. And Jesus shows them from the scriptures, that is from the prophets, from the Old Testament, how the Messiah would come and suffer and die and rise again. And there was a moment, it says, where he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And suddenly they realized this is him. We're in the presence of Jesus. He is raised. And everything he just said is true. And the scriptures are true. And it made sense to them. So Jesus is telling his disciples, I know you don't understand right now. But there will come a time very soon when it will all make sense. I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, verse 26, 
In that day you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you. So here's the word that I think is summed up right here. Access. Access. We have access to God. Personally. Directly. Without a priest. Without an intermediary carrying our message to him. We have access to God. That's one way to express the gospel. The good news is that Jesus has purchased by his life and death and resurrection access to God. Personal, direct, unfettered access to God. This is staggering. And if you consider this audience and this Jewish context, the idea of this kind of direct, unfettered access to the holy God would have been scandalous. Back in Old Testament, Old Covenant Israel days, only Moses, like during the days of the tabernacle where God dwelt in the tabernacle, only Moses could approach God. Exodus 34 tells us that Moses spoke face to face with God like a man would speak with his friend. Like that was a very unique and special and strange uh, access that Moses had. But the people of Israel, they wouldn't dare go walk up to the tabernacle and like, hey God, you got a second? That was unheard of, unthinkable to them. Only Moses would dare do that, and that's because he had been specifically authorized by God to do that. He invited Moses into his presence. And then, through the entire system of sacrifices and all of that 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 God would set up for Israel under the Old Covenant, even when the people would draw near to God, it would be through ceremonial cleansing and these rituals that they had to do to make sure they were entering seriously, solemnly, aware of their sin and their brokenness. They had to come with sacrifices of their own. They had to come with animals that would then be killed on behalf of their own sin to recognize I don't, I'm not worthy of being in God's presence. And even then, it would have to be done through a priest. God appointed this class of priests to watch over them and to take care of this ministry of sacrifices and on behalf of the people would go to God in the tabernacle or the temple and represent them before him. So the notion of direct unfettered access personally to God is completely new, completely unheard of to Jesus' followers at this time. And the gospel, in a word, is that Jesus Christ has removed the barriers that keep us from God. We have personal, direct access to the ear and the heart of God the Father. Jesus says, I don't say to you, you ask in my name. I say, you go to the Father, right? You will ask. Not I ask for you, you will ask because the Father loves you, all right? Now, this is not in contradiction to the things Jesus has been saying. In, throughout this message to his disciples, Jesus has said, Anything you ask in my name, I will 
give it, that the Father, that the Son may be glorified and that you may bear much fruit. So he has said, you pray in my name. What he means by that is our access to God is purchased by him. Our access to God is on the basis of Jesus's credentials, Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' authorization, if you will. He authorizes us to go directly to God. And so he says, you don't have to just tell me and I go tell the Father, hey, my disciples want this. You go to the Father directly because the Father himself loves you. Now, this incredible access to God should probably evoke in us two responses. First, wonder, worship, gratitude. What an amazing privilege. What an amazing joy, an amazing gift that we've been given that we, sinners, rebels, creatures, have immediate personal access to the King, the Creator, the Sovereign Lord of the universe. I don't have to make phone calls and set up an appointment. I don't have to show my ID card to some secretary who lets me through. I don't have to wait to get on God's schedule at any time. We have access to God. This is unbelievable. It ought to move us to worship. And it probably, secondly, maybe evokes a little bit of shame. Maybe a little bit of guilt at how little we take advantage of this precious privilege. When we're in trouble or we're in need, things get hard in our lives, we're more often, we're more likely to go to our spouse or a friend or to our Facebook feed and let the world know about what's going on. Maybe before we even realize, you know what? I haven't even gone to the Lord with this. I haven't even taken the opportunity to talk to my Father who loves me. Or maybe we're just too busy, right? There's just too much going on. My job's too demanding. I've got to cart my kids from one activity to the next. Got to catch up on my Netflix series. Got to sink hours into an abyss of mindless internet content. Like, if we're honest, we fill our days with all kinds of things. Good things. Uh, indifferent things. Probably some bad things. And we go, oh yeah, I just didn't have time to really invest in my relationship with God. I didn't really have time to pray. I didn't really have time to open His Word and, and to hear from Him. We make time for the things we value. So I think to the extent that we are leaving out direct personal time with God in our lives, it's a statement on what we really believe. It's a statement on where our values and our priorities really lie. Brothers and sisters, may we learn the precious value of the unspeakable, blood-bought privilege of access to God the Father and live in light of it. My Father himself loves you. Listen to Matthew Henry, 
the Puritan pastor and commentator on these verses, he says, the disciples of Christ are the beloved of God himself. Christ not only turned away God's wrath from us and brought us into a covenant of peace and reconciliation, but purchased his favor for us and brought us into a covenant of friendship. Observe what an emphasis is laid upon this. The Father himself loveth you, who is perfectly happy in the enjoyment of himself, whose self-love is both his infinite rectitude, that is righteousness, and his infinite blessedness. Yet he is pleased to love you. The Father himself, whose favor you have forfeited and whose wrath you have incurred and with whom you need an advocate, he himself now loves you. How good and how great is the love of God for us. Well, there's a condition upon this privilege of access. You see it there in verse 27, the second half of it. He says, you ask directly of the Father, for the Father himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. This privilege isn't for everybody. This intimate, unfettered, direct access to God in prayer and relationship is only available to a certain category of people. Which ones? To those who love Jesus and believe that he came from God. The privilege of access to God is only available to those who love and believe in Jesus Christ. It's that plain. In fact, that sounds a bit like what Jesus said back in chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Access to God? I'm the doorway. I'm the pathway. If you don't believe in me, if you don't love me, you don't have that access. You live apart from this friendship and this kindness and this love of God. You live, in fact, Jesus would tell us in John chapter 3, under the wrath of God, under his just anger against your sin. If we don't love Jesus and believe in him, that's where we are. Now, God may sometimes listen to some of the prayers of some people, but he only promises to incline his ear in love and faithfulness to those who love and believe in Jesus Christ. So I got to ask, do you have confidence that God's ear is inclined to you? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ to bear your sin and to purchase for you this direct personal access to God? If so, then run, run, run to God. Praise him for this gift. Take advantage of it. If not, then turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith today. He's the only way to gain this kind of personal access to God. This precious promise of his listening ear and his heart inclined toward us in love. He finishes this section with kind of a a succinct statement concerning his mission. Look in verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. 
doesn't say anything in there about what he accomplished in his coming to the world, but he's speaking again of his where he came from and where he's been and where he's going, which is what the disciples' questions have kind of centered on in, uh, in this scene. Peter said, you know, where, where are you going? Why can't we go with you? And then Thomas said, well, how can we know the way? And that's where Jesus said, I am the way, right? So they've been asking, uh, we don't know where you're going, but what's all this about? So Jesus now says, very plainly and succinctly, I came from the Father into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. Of course, referring to the time after his resurrection and his 40 days of appearances and teaching that he would ascend back into heaven. My mission is nearly complete. It's kind of what he's saying. We've arrived at the hour for which I came into the world, and when it's done, I'll be returning home. Friends, we have access to God through faith in Jesus. If we love him, if we believe in him, the Father has inclined his ear and his heart toward us in love and invites us to draw near to him and to pray and to know him. Let's take advantage of that incredible privilege. The second half, beginning in verse 29, will reveal to us another word that will summarize the resources that are ours in Jesus Christ. Let's read together verses 29 down through the end of the chapter. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The word overcome tells us a good deal of what Jesus has purchased for us in his death and resurrection. He has purchased for us the promise that we in him will overcome. We will overcome the world is what he says. Let's look through these verses and unpack that a little bit. So first his disciples celebrate that they finally understand what Jesus is saying, right? Ah, now you're speaking plainly. Now we finally get it. We really know that you're from God now, right? You know, I can identify with these goofy guys. I don't know about you. I don't know if you're ever slow like I am, but sometimes God has to teach me the same lesson over and over before I really start to get it. I'm so glad that Jesus is patient with me. In the same way, the disciples here, they've heard this countless times by now. Jesus has predicted his death and his resurrection and his return to the Father. In this very conversation, he's been saying to them over and over, I'm going away, I'm going back to the Father, I'm, you know. And they're, hmm, what? I, but finally, now when he says in verse 28, I came from the Father, came into the world, I'm leaving the world, I'm going back to the Father. Ha ha ha! There it is. Now we get it. 
right? It takes us some time. Sometimes we've got to hear it in a different way. Sometimes we've got to hear it just for the 27th time for it to sink in. Let's be patient with each other in that too. Sometimes we've got to hear it more than once. Sometimes we don't learn it right away. Sometimes even when we think we get it, it's not down into our lives and out in the way that we live and behave yet. Be patient. Jesus gives us a great example of this, this this patience that he has. Look at verse 31. Jesus is not harsh with their slowness, but he does offer a gentle rebuke. He says, do you now believe? Like, okay, now you get it? Kind of like, finally, I've said this a few dozen times already. Now you get it? Feeling good about yourselves now? Be careful. He gives them a warning. You're about to prove just how thin that belief of yours really is. The hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. You remember just in chapter, at the end of chapter 13, Peter said, I'll go even to death for you, Lord. And Jesus said, actually, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times that you even know me. So when they start to get puffed up, oh yeah, I got this. Jesus goes, uh, it's not going to go the way you think. You might be disappointed by your own weakness of faith. Same way here. Now we get it. We totally believe. Really? In just a little while, you're going to be scattered. And you're going to leave me alone. And what he's doing here is essentially quoting from the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, the prophet says this, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Of course, we know in the Gospel of John that Jesus has presented himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep. He is the one who gathers the the sheep of God into the fold and keeps them safe for all eternity. He's the shepherd. And so now he quotes this or cites this prophecy from Zechariah. Once you strike the shepherd, all the sheep will scatter. And he says, you're about to scatter and leave me alone. In Matthew's uh, version of events, as he portrays it, in Matthew chapter 26, in uh, verse 31, Matthew says, in this conversation between Jesus and his disciples, then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Okay, so there he quotes Zechariah 13, 7, and he tells them, you're gonna be scattered, just like he did right now. And then in just a few verses later in chapter, Matthew chapter 26, verse 56, we see it come to pass. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. That's what happens. When the moment comes, when the pressure is on, when Jesus is on the hot seat, so to speak, instead of rallying around him, instead of coming to his defense, instead of saying, no, that's not a true accusation, when he's falsely accused, instead of saying, if he gets condemned, we get condemned right along with him, 
they scatter. They leave him alone. Matthew Henry again says, Many a good cause, when it is distressed by its enemies, is deserted by its friends. The disciples had continued with Christ in his other temptations and yet turned their back upon him now. Those that are tried do not always prove trusty. If we at any time find our friends unkind to us, let us remember that Christ's were so to him. He can identify with us, even in the weakness and fickleness of our friends at times. Maybe you've felt betrayed, abandoned, left behind by someone who you thought would be there for you. Jesus knows what that's like. Let's be careful not to have that haughty, proud spirit like Peter and these other disciples when they say, I get it. I'm all in. I believe. I'm going to death. Because we only stand if the Spirit of God enables us to stand. And we need to be aware of our own weakness, our own fickleness. Jesus says, you're going to leave me alone. But, verse 32, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus takes comfort and courage from the intimate relationship he enjoys with the Father, which he's spoken of consistently throughout John's Gospel. But really, I think he says this for the disciples' benefit. I think he wants to make sure that they don't feel too discouraged about the hard word he just gave them. You're going to leave me all alone. Truth is, I won't be alone. The Father will be with me. Because, check out what he says next. Verse 33. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. That's why I said this. I've told you this. I think you're going to fall away. You're going to scatter. You're going to leave me. I've said these things to you that you may have peace. Incredible. His disciples, his friends, are about to abandon him in his hour of need. And instead of badgering them about their fickle faith and their fair-weather friendship, he is concerned for their spiritual well-being and interested in their experience of peace amidst trouble. Isn't he kind? This is his disposition toward us. We are slow. We are fickle. We sometimes outright fail him, if we're honest. Yet he loves us. He cares for us. He's patient with us. He comes with a gentle reminder In me, you may have peace. We have this incredible verse, this incredible statement at the end of verse 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Two things from this verse that we are assured of. Number one, the presence of pain. The word tribulation is the Greek thlepsis, which literally means pressing together. In other words, the pressure is going to be on. Affliction, suffering. In this world, you will have tribulation. It's a certainty. He's already told them, the world will hate you. 
The world will persecute you. They will even kill you thinking they're serving God. If you think being a Christian is about a rosy, positive thinking, pie-in-the-sky detachment from real-world problems and heartache, you've been sold a bill of goods all dressed up in Christian language. That's not what the Christian life is about. Life for anyone is hard. In some ways, life for a Christian is even harder. The world hates you. You have enemies all around you. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is is a guarantee from the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures that life will be hard for the Jesus follower. It will often be painful. There will be pressure. There will be suffering. So anyone who tries to tell you Just trust in Jesus and all your problems go away. All your diseases get healed right away. Everything you ask for in faith, you're going to get exactly like you want it. You get to kind of float above the fray. That's not the Christian life, friends. But here's the upside. Here's the silver lining that makes the troubles worth the pain. Because Jesus also assures us, number two, of the promise of victory. The promise of victory. Take heart, I have overcome the world. The world is that system of beliefs and values and lifestyles led and governed by the devil. It's godless, it's lawless, it's self-absorbed, and Satan fans those flames. And people around us all day long fall right into step with that system. That's the system of belief and of thought and the values that are opposed to the things of God. Jesus says, I've overcome it. I've overcome the world. Because Jesus dwells in Christians by the Holy Spirit. John the author of this gospel assures us in one of his letters, 1 John 4.4, 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who's that? The devil. He who is in you, the Holy Spirit of God, is greater than he who is in the world. So if Jesus overcomes, guess what? You overcome. If Jesus has victory, you have victory. If Jesus triumphs over death, you triumph over death. You have nothing to fear in the grave. Only Christians have that to say. Jesus overcame the grave. If we're in him and if he is in us, we overcome it too. Read 1 Corinthians 15. It's glorious. Gary Burge says uh, in his commentary that this tension is really what defines following Jesus. He says, discipleship is about learning how to discover peace when surrounded by threat. How to possess tranquility despite those hostile to your faith. The solution is courage. Despite the circumstances, the victory of Jesus outweighs the jeopardy of the present crisis. No matter how tough it gets, 
no matter how high the heat is turned up around you or how much pressure is on you or how much suffering you have to endure, the promise of an overcoming reality and faith in Jesus cannot be undone, cannot be shaken in the life of a Christian. So, how do we discover peace when surrounded by threat, to use that language? So I'm going to give you two exhortations based on what we've seen in this passage. How do we discover peace in the midst of this surrounding threat? Number one, take advantage of the access to God that Jesus has purchased for you. It's very simple. Take advantage of the access to God that Jesus has purchased for you. If you're in the middle of trouble and hardship and pain and suffering and loss and confusion and pressure, go to God. There's an old Cademan's Call song about prayer that says, water, water everywhere, and I complain about my thirst. The prescription's in my hand while the pain I curse. We have direct, unfettered access to God anytime. And we go, oh, it's so hard. I don't know what to do. Where am I going to get wisdom? Where am I going to get strength? Who's going to help me? And God goes, I'm right here. Come to me. God loves you. God invites you. God hears you. God answers you. Run, run, run to God in prayer. That's the first thing. How do you discover peace in the midst of this threatening, perplexing tribulation? Go to God. Take advantage of the access to God that Jesus has purchased for you. Number two. Remind yourself regularly of Jesus' victory over sin and death. Remind yourself regularly of the victory of Jesus over sin and death. In a word, preach the gospel to yourself all the time. Sing it. Read it. Memorize verses. Talk about the gospel with your Christian friends. Talk about the gospel with your unbelieving friends. The gospel in front of us all the time will remind us of God's power over sin, of God's victory over death and hell, and the precious promises that because we are in Christ, we have what He has. His victory becomes our victory. His triumph becomes our triumph. So this statement from Jesus is true. Take heart, I have overcome the world. That's true. That's an absolute, objective, true statement. So the main thing we've got to do with it, believe it. It's like Paul says in Romans 6, you have died to sin. Therefore, reckon yourselves dead to sin. It's like it's a reality. It's true. In Christ, you've died to sin. So what do you do with that? Believe it. Own it. Live like it. Sin isn't your master anymore. Jesus has overcome it. Christians overcome only insofar as they are connected to Jesus by faith. So no talk of victory or overcoming faith is valid unless Jesus' triumph over death by his own crucifixion and resurrection is the root of it. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The, the crucifixion of Jesus and 
its power in our lives, our testimony, the story of God's grace to us. Romans 8, 37, in that great passage where Paul says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trial or tribulation or sword or famine or nakedness or peril? Nothing can separate us, right? What he says in verse 8, 37 is, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Conquering faith, overcoming the world, defeating sin and all that kind of stuff, that's not stuff you go do for Jesus. That is something that you do through Jesus. Jesus does it for you and in you and carries you along in his victory. It's faith. That's why salvation is not about all the stuff we do. Salvation is about all the stuff Jesus did and gives to us by faith. That's what it comes down to. So Jesus' triumph over the world and his disciples' subsequent triumph thereby is a stark and notable contrast with his own disciples' weakness and fear. If you just think of the context of this story, you're going to leave. You're going to scatter. You're going to go home and leave me alone. I am going to overcome. I'm going to beat the world. I'm going to destroy the devil. I'm going to triumph over death. When the pressure is on, the disciples stumble and fall away. That's us. That's where we live. We live in that weak part where we go, eh, I don't really want it. But Jesus would face death head on and triumph over the grave on their behalf. So Jesus' words, take heart, I have overcome the world, are an offer of grace. It's like he's saying, I know you can't handle the heat that the world will put on you. So I'm handling it for you. And that's the good news. You can't do it, so Jesus did it for you. Friends, that's the gospel. We don't believe a gospel of try a little harder, work a little longer, strive a little deeper, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. That's not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is you don't have it in you. You can't make yourself acceptable to God. You can't get strong enough, get smart enough, get good enough to overcome death and sin and the grave. You've just got to rest on Jesus because he did it for you. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And if you're in me, you overcome as well.